this is the Baileys. And we just happened to walk through, you know, smelling absolutely atrocious after having been up on the wall for a few days, carrying away protein bucket full of our own excrement uh, right through this wedding party. The Bat List is brought to you with the support of Wild Earth, adventure gear, expertise and inspiration. What more could you want when planning your next expedition? Check them out on social media at Wild Earth Australia. This podcast is also brought to you with the support of Awesome Woodies, Australian-made sustainable training tools handcrafted right here in southeast Queensland. In this episode, I caught up with David Jefferson. Dave is a familiar face on the Southeast Queensland climbing scene and someone whose climbing career has always intrigued me. He learned the bulk of his mountaineering skills over years of climbing in the ultimate climbing mecca, Yosemite. I wanted to know what it's really like climbing there as a local, not just a tourist, and how Dave's years in Yosemite prepared him for his many big mountain successes and a few bales in the Andes. Dave's a humble guy, but he's accomplished a lot, not least of which is co-authoring the brand new Queensland Bouldering Guidebook, which is for sale now right this very second. So please go and get your hot little hands on that. Uh, One last thing before we get cracking, Dave's now in New Zealand, so he had to record this over Zoom. I have whatever the opposite of a Midas touch is when it comes to technology, so I'm still trying to iron out a few kinks when it comes to sound. Please bear with me. The audio quality in this episode may be a little bit whack, but I can promise that Dave's story is worth the listen regardless. My name is David Jefferson. I am... And I guess an all-arounder as a climber, I consider myself. Uh, I've dabbled in a little bit of everything. Uh, obviously, now I probably will be most associated with with bouldering in the hearts of many Southeast Queenslanders. But um, really, I've spent a lot more time uh, track climbing, adventure climbing, alpine um, sport climbing, and um, yeah, I, I mean. I guess I should probably say that I am I'm American originally, but spent a lot of years living in Queensland, and now I live in New Zealand in Christchurch, uh, and also spent a number of years living in Europe and South America. So I've, I've been around the block a bit with with climbing, and and probably probably climbed in maybe I don't know 25, 25 to thirty countries, something like that. Visited fifty maybe. So um, I've really just as a, as a climber, I've just really tried to get out and, and use it as a vehicle to connect with the community, to uh, see different places, meet people, uh, have a lot of different types of experiences. Uh, I really never, um, I mean, I guess like technically the, the discipline I'm best at is sport climbing, but I'm not really like a good climber in any particular domain. Uh, like I just have... Um, had a lot of different experiences, I suppose. Funnily enough, um, midway through 2020, I injured myself quite badly bouldering. Well, I mean, badly relatively. I had quite a bad uh, ankle sprain 
that put me out for about six to eight weeks. But I was able to recover and it was just very shortly after I recovered, maybe a week or two, that, that Ryan and I climbed the governor on Barney. And then um, I guess I maybe just thinking about wanting to fall into thin air rather than hitting things, I, I got stuck into climbing hard sport routes at Flinders Cave and, and worked my way through most of the routes there. I'm, there are definitely still a couple that, that I didn't get to tick off before I left, but, but yeah, many, many routes uh, got done in that 2020, early 2021 season, which is pretty, pretty funny in a way because I spent, um, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years on, climbing consistently at the same grade, at the same level as a sport climber. And I never even thought to project something. I just thought like, well, if I can't onsite or send it second go, then that's, that'll just be good for me. And last year I started trying to experiment with what would happen if I actually tried hard and tried to learn beta and came back and really siege these routes. So um, yeah, it was a good growth experience too. Hello, Dave from across the ditch. How are you doing? Nicole, um, well, we are in the last day of lockdown, so um, my climbing muscles have gotten a bit stale and, and flaccid, but I'm looking forward to getting out again tomorrow. Uh, so all things considered, we're, we're doing all right, yeah. Yeah, congrats on uh, almost finishing lockdown. Um, uh, we're recording this on Zoom, so hopefully there'll be no technical issues with this, but um you know, we'll just see how we go. Um, so Dave, I guess first things first, congratulations are in order. You're the published author of a guidebook. That's right. Well, first I should say co-author, and I, I really want to give a lot of due credit to my co-author, uh, Jimmy Blackall, who uh, hopefully will hear this podcast and, and um, critique it. <laughs> no, we are. Uh, our book, Queens on Bouldering, has been released. It uh, arrived to Australia's shores a few weeks ago and went through customs and I assume got sniffed by a lot of dogs and is now out uh, in the shops. So, um, I mean, I'm sure our supporters would like me to mention where they're available so you can get them at a lot of the local retailers around Brisbane, um, Pinnacle, certainly in K2, uh, Climbing Anchors, Wild Earth are selling them and a lot of the gyms, so Urban Climb. Uh, and most of the, I think, most of the gyms on the Sunshine Coast and Gold Coast uh, are also stocking the book. So uh, you can get it a lot of places, yeah. It's really exciting. It's something that I'm sure people have been kind of waiting for and hoping that someone would kind of do the heavy lifting and create a Queensland Boulder and guidebook. Um, and this was your, uh, you're in New Zealand now, but you were in Australia for the sort of big 2020 lockdowns. And that was your kind of lo COVID lockdown project, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, so um, funnily enough, uh, Jimmy had had the idea independently, uh, well, before I did, several years before, and he had a mate who was going to uh, do, to collaborate on the project with him, but who ended up moving overseas, and so it never got off the ground. And then during COVID lockdowns last year, so I, when, when I last lived in Queensland was in, in, uh, the glorious city of Ipswich and uh, you know for most intensive purposes it was perhaps not the most um, 
the most fascinating place to live, although it did have the advantage of during COVID era lockdowns being located right next to White Rock. And so uh, in lieu of going to the gym or, or going rope climbing, as I would have liked to have been a frog, um, mostly in winter last year, I spent a lot of time at White Rock and I noticed that there were other people out there. There were also a lot of people whose names I didn't recognize logging a sense on the crag. And so I, I thought I had the idea like, well, you know, seems like there are maybe a lot of people who would otherwise be going to the gym and now are making the transition to outdoor bouldering. And uh, a guidebook could be an important, maybe educational tool and, and also just something for which there might be a need. So yes. that's how the that's how it got off the ground essentially. I, I think I, I posted something on one of the Facebook pages, maybe Brisbane Bouldering, and just asked if if such a book existed hypothetically, would people be interested in buying it? And uh, Jimmy got in touch with me. We we already had known each other before, but um, yeah, we got in contact and decided to launch the thing. And this is maybe a dumb question, but I don't really know much about the ins and outs of writing a guidebook. Did you climb every route that's in the guidebook between the two of you? Not every route, not every, not every problem, but, um, well, clearly not, not every problem because there are, you know, there's some blocks there listed up to V, V12, V13. Um, we're definitely not that strong, but we climbed a vast majority of the problems listed there between us, uh, especially at the local areas, like, I mean, Tui Forest, for instance, I think, you know, apart from the, the very hardest routes that, you know, only Moogie and a handful of others can lay claim to, uh, I think I've, I've probably ticked 95% of the problems there and uh, White Rock, same, same story. You know, again, not, not the hardest stuff, but stuff up to around V8, uh, we, we did many of the problems. So um, other things we had to rely on other people's descriptions, but um, yeah, we did a fair bit of, of on-the-ground research for it, which, of course, is fun. And you know people are going to want to know this. What is your favourite uh, problem that you climbed that's in the guidebook? That's a, that I, I didn't anticipate that question, but it's a, <laughs> yeah, I like yeah. to surprise people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I think um, there are a few I can think of. Um, so definitely... The stuff at the underground uh, at White Rock really has a special place in my heart because that was, and that's not one problem, so this is a cop out, but um, there, you know, there are a few like, like Shinkansen or um, maybe um, Zigzag Railway or some of those like little, just little problems. I mean, basically everything there is a link up. It's like the cool of the bouldering, right? Like you just have a bunch of holds in a cave and you figure out how to put them together. And some of it's, well, all of bouldering is contrived, of course, but some of it's especially contrived because there are problems there where you traverse across and then traverse back and it's a new problem. Um, but I, I spent a lot of time there in the COVID lockdowns last year. It was my local gym. So I'd, I'd probably have to say that place is, is really holds a special place in my heart. It is cool out there. And, you know, as someone that doesn't do a whole lot of outdoor bouldering, it's also kind of a nice spot to go because, um, well, at least I find it's not that much of a wig out compared to some other outdoor bouldering. So that's yeah. nice. Always well, nice that was part of the thing. Exactly. You know, during, during COVID, I'd go out by myself. I'd have one mat, um, no spotters, right? Mm -hmm. So it was important to go somewhere that was reasonably safe. 
um, yeah, so it's, it's quite good for that. Wow, uh, co-author of Queensland Boulder and Guidebook. I can't wait to uh, have a proper read of it. I've sort of had a, a, a little look, so uh, very excited about that. And um, Dave, I mean, one of the, I've been dying to do, to record a podcast episode with you basically since I started this whole thing, um, because you are definitely one of the people I know who has the most interesting and colourful climbing history. Um, and I think for like the first year after I met you, I called you Yosemite Dave because uh, you're the only person I know who really like, um, you know, established the like foundations of their kind of big mountain climbing in Yosemite. And I'm so fascinated by that. I think probably, um, I said this to you last time we spoke, but I think probably what the majority of Queensland and maybe even Australian climbers know about Yosemite is based on um, like pop culture, maybe like Valley Uprising or Free Solo or whatever the, you know, films and TV and podcasts are that people are listening to. Um, so I, I want to know a little bit about, you didn't start climbing at Yosemite, but it's where you learned a lot of the skills that you kind of went on to use um, later on in your climbing career. So I want to know what, what it was like the first time you climbed at the valley and um, yeah, some of the interesting experiences that you had there. Sure. Well, um, yeah, so well, what you say is true. I didn't start climbing in Yosemite, but it was definitely uh, a bit of a, a proving ground for me. Um, and, and there, in addition to uh, other climbing in California when I was living there did really form the foundation of a lot of skills that I uh, I still try to employ today in, in different forms of climbing, especially bigger mountain routes. But uh, one, so one thing I'll say is um, I think I visited Yosemite for the first time when I was maybe, I don't know, 16 years old or something. I, I, I grew up on the east coast of the states but I had gone there uh, just on a family holiday and so I went there way before I ever started climbing and and uh, I remember the impression that everyone gets when you drive into the valley and you know you get there to El Cap Meadow and you have all these just massive formations around you um, it's it's really incredible uh, but Climbing wasn't even something that would have been on my, I don't even think I knew climbing existed when I was a teenager. Like it's certainly, I guess I knew people climbed Everest or whatever, but it was not anything that I, where I grew up that there's actually quite a lot of really good bouldering where I grew up funnily enough. Um, but I, I also didn't know about that when I was a kid. So um, when I moved to California, I knew that part of the reason I was moving there was to be able to, to climb in places like Yosemite uh, because I, at that point I had already been climbing for probably four, four years, five years, something like that. But, you know, I was pretty much a, a bumbling gym climber, sport climber, boulder, like, you know, I didn't really, didn't really know what I was doing too much apart from the basics. So it was, it was part of the impetus for me moving there, but I had been living in California for probably close to a year before I actually ever got to Yosemite to climb. And part of the reason for that was I just simply lacked the skills. I didn't know how to trad climb. And um, fortunately, I 
one of my best mates at the time still is, I'm still in touch with him and, and we're close, although we don't live close together. Uh, he, we, so we actually went to law school together and he had maybe like one day more of track climbing than I did. And I had zero days. So uh, we just decided to go out having never met each other before, you know, just like found each other through some, uh, I think like some club at the uni and um, we, we agreed to go out and meet at this crag in, in the Sierra Nevada called Sugarloaf, which is really quite a nice uh, little granite crag in the Sierra Nevada. Um, actually, for a time, it hosted what is reputed to be the world's hardest trad route that was put up by Tony Yanero in, I think, 1979 called Grand Illusions. Absolutely. I have not climbed it, but if I could ever go back and project it, I would. So it's this incredible uh, roof finger crack. And so um, my mate Daniel and I linked up and we, we sort of taught each other and ourselves how to trag climb. Like I distinctly remember the first time I belayed him up like from the top of a pitch. Uh, it was really more just a single pitch route, I think, but it had the option. It was at another trad area in, in the Sierra called Donner Summit. Uh, and I remember belaying him up off of an American death triangle. Like I didn't know how to make a proper anchor. It was just terrible, you know? Um, just so yeah, we had- Just explain Dave to the people what an American death triangle is. Right, so you know, like you, you figure if you have at least a, you, if you are building a chat anchor, ideally you have more than, more than two points, but at least two, right? Two points of protection in the wall. And you want those points to be equalized. Uh, you want them to have a good angle, no extension, uh, et cetera, like all the principles of anchor building. And ideally what you'll do is you'll, you'll pull the cordillette or the sling, whatever you're using to make the anchor between the two pieces, you'll, you'll pull it together um, sort of from the middle and then create a master point. Uh, so that if you're looking at the master point, it, it just looks like there are two strands going up to the pieces. An American death triangle is where the cordelette or the sling simply runs through the pieces uh, and then you clip the bottom part without actually bringing any, everything together to create a master point. So, uh, I mean, it doesn't have any of the, the necessary qualities of a good anchor. Uh, if any of the pieces fail, we'll definitely rip the other one out. It's not redundant. Um, if the sling breaks, the whole thing just flies out of the anchor. Uh, yeah, so obviously it was dodgy as. Um, but, you know, we, we got a little better at it. And um, I, I took my first piece ripping trad fall at um, Snowshed Wall at Donner Summit, which is just got it's stacked with these amazing trad climbs, you know, mostly from say grade 18 to 22, although there are some harder ones too. And um, yeah, it's just, it's incredible, like the amount of climbing in the Tahoe area in California too, which is close to where I was living. And so eventually after about a year or so, um, Daniel and I and some others started venturing out into bigger adventures. And that included Yosemite, it also included the High Sierra. And um, I mean, we took trips to Indian Creek and uh, Joshua Tree, where we were at Joshua Tree several times and, and some of the other places around the west coast of the US, basically. See, this is what I mean. I think you've just ticked off all of these, you know, casually ticked off all of these really iconic 
uh, climbing locations in the States that like everyone's are on everybody's climbing bucket list. It's incredible. So tell me about some of the sort of more standout experiences climbing that you had at Yosemite. Is there anything that really um, is memorable that you climbed? Definitely. Oh, there are many things. Um, yeah, I mean, so my Yosemite career was, there are a few things I'll say about it. A lot of people have this perception of Yosemite uh, of like, um, I mean, like you said, the, the more recent media, or it will be like someone like Chongo, you know, the, the classic like Will Belay for food sign and stuff like that. Like they have this idea, this notion of the dirtbag who lives in Camp 4 and uh, is just there, is a Yosemite lifer, like there every day, they're climbing all the walls, um, they're doing really big objectives. But the thing is, when you live in Northern California, Yosemite is, is almost like your local crag. It was, it was less than three and a half hours from where I lived. And I was also, like I said, I was in, initially I was in law school and then I was working after I, went, after I finished school. Um, so I wasn't in a position to just take, you know, huge blocks of time to go live in the valley, but I did get there regularly because it was basically a weekend trip away. And so um, I never really got to the point where I was able to do anything too serious. Like I, 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 did, I did a little bit of egg climbing. I climbed a couple of walls in the valley, but most of what I would do would be um, longer free climbs. In addition to some cragging, like there's really good single pitch track cragging in the valley. And I did heaps of that too. But yeah, I mean, some of the routes that stand out, um, some of the experiences were, so they're all about the people, first of all, they're all about the partners I had. So uh, for example, one, one of the days that I was out, uh, I, I had a mate uh, called Aidan McGuire, who's, who still lives in Northern California. He's originally from the UK. And um, he's, he's an old hand at California climbing. He did heaps of first ascents in, in Tahoe and, and other parts of the state. And um, we went out with the idea to climb this route called the Chenard Herbert, which is on Sentinel. Uh, it's a lot of people know uh, about the Stexalithae on the Sentinel, which is like this famous route. Uh, it goes at 10, 510A, I think 10A, but it's probably, you know, it's been sandbagged, wide stuff, um, mostly oh, like... Sorry, Dave, what's that in Australian grades? Yeah, I should, I should convert. Uh, around grade 18. Yeah, I'll never learn. That's why I yeah. ask. <laughs> yeah, no, so that's, yeah. It, the thing is, I, I sometimes I hesitate to, I, usually I, I'll just say it in Eubank because I actually prefer the Eubank grading system, but for some Yosemite climbs, it's hard to translate because yeah. some, like for example, there's the grade five, nine plus in the YDS, which was just before they ever figured, the, before they invented 510 and the, like the lettering system that goes from 510 and up, they just added a plus to everything that was harder than five nines. So you'll get on some five nines there that are like the equivalent of grade 23 when a five nine on its face should be like grade 17. Yeah. So anyway, um, the, this route on the Sentinel called Chenard Herbert is this, um, it's actually on the American 60 minute special that was sort of Alex Honnold's debut as a free soloist. It, that's the route that he's soloing. It's this incredible, uh, climb. I think it's 15 or 18 pitches and um, it's got a massive like four-hour approach up some really sketchy 
slab scrambles and um, like class four um, American grade scrambling. Uh, and then you get onto the route proper and the crux pitches are all at the top. And the, the crux, the hardest, I think there are three pitches at uh, around grade 23. Um, and so I, uh, I did this route with my mate Aiden, who has, he is way more accomplished than I am in terms of Yosemite climbing. And this was one of the few outliers on his list. And so I went and we did it together. But the great thing about it was, uh, so he's a, he, he, he's a physician's assistant by trade. And so uh, he had brought some Ambien along to help us sleep. Uh, Ambien is a sleep aid, which if you're not familiar, will make you pretty loopy, almost hallucinogenic uh, if you take it. So the night before we were doing an illegal bivy uh, in, outside the, next to the car park of what used to be called the Awani Lodge, like this iconic lodge in, on the valley floor. Which is pretty slick, just, right? It's, it's pretty uh, fancy, that lodge. Uh, so it's fancy as. It's like a four-star hotel, at least, I, I believe. I mean, it's like so many weddings there and everything. It's really, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, super historic. But like the ironic thing is one of the Yosemite dirtbag climber secrets is that you, at least at the time when I was climbing there, everyone would go bivy illegally like next to the Iwani. And so that's what we were doing. Uh, we chucked our sleeping bags down on the ground and we were just thinking, oh, well, you know, we'll just sleep for a bit and get up early because we we're anticipating a big day. So Aiden cracked out the Ambien and offered me some. And I was like, all right, sure. You know, I, we're getting up at 4.30 in the morning. Might be good to get some shut eye. Um, and so I was just on the verge of falling asleep when I heard all this rustling. I thought it was a bear or something, you know, and I looked over and Aiden's just like poking around everywhere. And I was like, Aiden, what, what are you doing? He's like, oh, let's go over to the Awani. I was like, why, why do you want to do that? We're going to sleep. He's like, just trust me, let's go over there. So we went over and in the lobby of this fancy hotel, there's a little gift shop. And I'm following Aiden in. At this point, he's, you know, he's a man in his 50s, like a respectable human. <laughs> uh, and he just goes into this gift shop and starts taking all the lollies and opening them up and eating them right in front of the staff working there. And she's like, God, control yourself. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Um, so anyway, yeah, eventually uh, got him contained and got him out of there. And we went to sleep and he didn't remember a whit of it the next morning. So that was pretty good times. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we managed to do this route um, in good style. We, we, we had the French free a few moves, but like we were quite proud of the accomplishment. We didn't get lost on the descent. It has a notorious descent for that. And, and really it's not a route that gets done very much. Uh, so yeah, we, we were proud to free climb the whole thing, albeit with a few Frenching moves. Well, so, um, French yeah. free for those who don't know is, is my signature trad climbing move. It's when you can't <laughs> uh, free climb a move, you grab a piece of gear and pull yourself up past it. So you kind of do little bits of aid climbing within a, a mostly free climbing route. Yeah, and apologies to all, all your French listeners because, I mean, it's really taken the piss. It's not really a, <laughs> it's an unfortunately derogatory term. I'm not uh, sure we've quite made it across the shores to France yet, but uh, yeah. yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, so that's one, I mean, I can tell, I don't know how much time you want to listen to me talk about climbing in Yosemite, but I, I, I have a few, I have a few other good stories I could tell um, if you, if you're interested. Well, one, one thing that I think is super interesting, I remember um, 
maybe like two years ago now, back when we could go and do things together, um, we were at a real rock. Um, I don't remember which one, um, but the nose speed record was playing and you casually mentioned that uh, Jim Reynolds was uh, one of your climbing partners who is in the nose speed record climbing with Brad Gobright. Yes, that is true. Um, <clears throat> the, late, the late Brad Gobright, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jim and I, um, we, yeah, we climbed together uh, for a period there, probably, it must have been in 2014, maybe. Um, so Jim is an incredibly accomplished climber, right? Um, in addition to that film about him uh, with Brad getting the nose speed record, battling um, Honold and Kevin Jorgensen for the nose speed record, I think um, it was sorry, Tommy Caldwell, what am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> I'm using my, my uh, Yosemite films. Too many legends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, those are all people that you see around when you're, and you meet out when you're climbing in those areas too. I've had the, the, fortune, the good fortune to meet all those guys at different times. But, but yeah, Jim, um, at that point, so yeah, he's gone on to do many impressive things. The most impressive is his free solo of Fitzroy last year, I believe, or 2019, I think, um, which he, which is just an unbelievable undertaking. Uh, and there's a great Enorma cast episode that came out maybe six months ago where uh, Chris Cluse interviews Jim about it. But, you know, not only did he free solo uh, up, but he down climbed the entire thing. So, you know, most pure climb, most pure form of, of uh, soloing possible. Um, so yeah, Jim, I, I, I think I probably met through another good friend and regular partner of mine called Alex Morris and um, she and Jim later dated for a time, but Alex has also gone on to, to do some impressive stuff uh, to set some, some speed, uh, speed climbing records in Yosemite with Libby Sauter, for example. Uh, so, you know, both much more accomplished climbers than me, but I, at the time I was like, you know, comparatively the old man, I was probably, you know, five or seven years older than them. And uh, they were they were relatively new to climbing. And there's one day in particular, I remember we were out and um, we didn't really have any particular agenda. We were in Tuolumne Meadows, which is also part of Yosemite National Park. Most people overseas think about the valley as that's all that Yosemite is. But in fact, Yosemite is massive and um, also has a lot of other climbing in different parts. And one of the more well-known areas in addition to the valley is called Tuolumne Meadows, which is like the high country area. And it's this just beautiful location uh, filled with these granite domes. Um, so not quite the big walls, but really beautiful uh, dome and, and, uh, and ridgeline formations and just streams and, and wildflowers and meadows everywhere, it's stunning. So one morning we were in Tuolumne and we were woken up from, from bivying outside the park and we met at the, the Tuolumne Meadows store, which is just the only commercial place inside of Tuolumne. And we were just having brekkie there and talking about what to do. And we just decided to uh, do a little link up on-site free solo of a number of features there. So, um, the link up we did incorporated the Matthews Crest, which is 
probably about a kilometer long of this giant granite ridge line. And it, I mean, if you were to pitch it out, it would probably be 30 pitches. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, but a lot of it's scrambling and then it has climbing up to grade 16 or so uh, in a few spots. And so we did a big cross country traverse in the high, across the high country to get on Matthew's crest and, um, and soloed that and then went down uh, on the way out and uh, onside soloed Cathedral Peak, which is uh, I think about an eight pitch route that is, has been called the best five, six in the world. Um, so, you know, grade 15 basically, uh, but it's incredible location, incredible uh, formation. And then we, we down climbed that and went and uh, a rainstorm came in, but it only hit the high country. And so we got back to the road and crossed the other side and we were able to still solo up, I believe it was Northwest Books, which is this route on Lambert Dome. And we got up there and watched the sunset. And I mean, it was just a phenomenal day. I, I have actually, I was just looking at a photo of it um, that I'll, I'll send to you that with all of us. But I think there were um, maybe five or six of us there. Yeah, there were six of us there for the day. So, um, I mean, it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. Yeah. yeah. If I could do all of those routes in my life, I would be so happy, let alone in one single day. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, I feel like we could do a five hour podcast episode just talking about Yosemite. But, you know, even though you didn't live there sort of in that old kind of dirtbag style, you, you did engage, of course, in the time honored uh, tradition of dumpster diving and, uh, you know, paying homage to those kind of classic dirtbag traditions. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> well, I think maybe you're, you're thinking of a, a particular story, which um, was when I was with my aforementioned mate, Daniel, the one who, um, who taught me slash I taught him to try and climb. Uh, and our other friend, Alex, who I just mentioned, and um, we had climbed the, uh, the south face of the Washington Column, which is like this classic intro to aid climbing aid route. And we were total aid climbing gumbies, like absolute, we didn't know what we were doing, you know, like terror. I think we, <laughs> we almost killed Alex at one point with the haul bag, well, with our shit hauling system and <laughs> like almost, released when she was when she was cleaning a pitch and uh, anyway it was it was just an epic thing but uh to listeners who are unaware of the logistics of wall climbing um when you're up on the wall you have to practice let's say extreme leave no trace this is not always the case because you know back in the 90s and before in in the valley people would just throw their shit literally and figuratively off of LCAP. Um, I mean, people used to um, not only just get rid of their gear, but if they had to uh, relieve themselves, they would do so in a brown paper bag and then chuck it into the bush, you know? Uh, obviously that's no longer the standard in a national park. Uh, and so we had to deal with our waste uh, in a proper manner. And rather than buy um, like a poop tube or something that's, you know, a little bit more professional. Um, Daniel brought along this old 
you know those big jugs that you get whey like weightlifters bodybuilders get whey protein in sure yeah <laughs> daddy was just hilarious he, you know, he probably he probably weighed like 50 kilos just like this little guy but he always he's taking whey protein <laughs> like i guess he wanted to get bigger and so we brought one of those to deal with our our waist issue um and then after after we finished the route um you know we were up there for a few days and we wrapped down and we're walking back to our car and we got a little lost um which was just must have been delirium because it was on the valley floor on like sealed roads and things like you don't get lost but we ended up on the other side of the Awani Lodge to where we wanted to be. We wanted to be over in the car park. So we thought, why not just cut through it? Uh, and at the time, there was this probably 150 person wedding going on. And we just happened to walk through, you know, smelling absolutely atrocious after having been up on the wall for a few days, carrying a whey protein bucket full of our own excrement uh, right through this wedding party. And um, yeah, so, you know, there are a few instances of, of dirtbaggery that we engage in from time to time. Yeah, I mean, it's the full Yosemite experience, right? Absolutely. So I, I think I must have climbed in California for, lived and climbed in California for six years, seven years, maybe. I mean, the thing is, it gets a little blurry because uh, I moved to Australia in 2015, but I also spent all of 2016 living in Ecuador and I also went to California for work uh, once a year until 2019. And actually when I was, I kind of, I still went back to Yosemite during those more recent years, but I also spent a lot of time uh, developing a secret crag, which I think is still secret. So I, will, I shall not mention the name, um, but it's near Lassen National Park. Um, some of my good mates uh, and I have put up probably around a hundred routes in this uh, really incredible location. We're the only people who've, who've uh, done any development there so far. Uh, so a lot of the time when I was going back, I, I kind of got sucked into that. Oh, maybe another guidebook one day that you'll co-author? There actually is a guidebook. Oh. <laughs> Matt, Matt, my, yeah, my mate Matt, who, I mean, it's a great story of this place because he, he's the third generation in his family. He grew up right next to it, basically, and his, he used to go with his dad fishing there. And um, before he ever started climbing, he remembered looking up these, there's a cliff band that's about a kilometer and a half long. And um, the, the, at the tallest height, maybe uh, 100 meters tall. And there are actually two tiers. So one, the lower one's about 30 meters and the upper one's about 100. And uh, so it's, you know, it's a big place. There's a lot of potential, potential for a thousand routes there. Um, but yeah, one day he just decided to explore it from a climber's perspective and, and the rest is history. So Matt's already put together uh, a bit of an unofficial guidebook, but perhaps I will help him with the, the software at some stage. Yeah. Wow. So all these years of climbing in Yosemite and, and at Northern California at large, um, like I said before, that was sort of where you cut your teeth, where you learned um, all of these rope skills that are applicable to kind of larger alpine routes, which you've done a fair bit of alpine climbing. Um, and you said just before that you lived in South America and that's sort of where you did a lot of your, you know, alpine ascents. Um, and you told me that you have done a fair bit of solo alpine climbing. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Sure. Well, I mean, it, that sounds a bit more impressive than it is probably, but I, I've, I've done a lot of solo peak bagging. I mean, some of it has been, you know, proper, proper mountains too, like, you know, glaciated peaks and things that I have soloed, um, but nothing too hard. Um, probably nothing harder than like PD and like a French Alpine grade. Um, maybe, yeah, so somewhere around there. But um, when, so when I was living in Ecuador, uh, I was living there doing research towards my, my dissertation. And so I uh, basically could, I had a totally open schedule. Like I, I, I did research, you know, like that, that resulted in another book actually. So I don't only write God books, but um, I, I was free to, to do whatever I wanted. Basically I lived alone. Um, and I had a motorbike and I was really keen to just explore and get out. And I had partners there and um, I, I climbed, I have still some very good friends, Ecuadorians that I have, excuse me, I've climbed a fair bit with, but um, you know, sometimes during midweek, if you just want to go out at 11 a.m. And, and summit something, you can't always find a partner. Uh, so I would often hop on my motorbike and just, try to ride out to maybe ride up to 4,000 meters or so and get off and do a combination of hiking and trail running and scrambling, um, probably sometimes up to, you know, the mid-teen grades um, and you and Eubank rock grades. And um, yeah, just managed to bag a lot of the, the summits. So I think I've probably, I think I've summited 15 out of the 20 tallest mountains in Ecuador. Um, Again, a lot of them are non-technical. Um, some of them, there are some that are, are highly technical and there are others that are just walk-ups. So it, it really, it depends, but they're all over, you know, 4,000, 4,500 meters. Um, and the great thing about living in Quito is that you live at just under 3,000 meters. So you are acclimatized just by nature of walking out your front door. Um, and yeah, so it's great to just get on the bike and, and go to a new place and, and see how far I can get up. You did tell me a funny story one time about um, when you were soloing past a, a guided group um, and the mountain guides were bitching about you um, and, you know, mocking this gringo for going up the mountain by himself. Yes, that's true. That was actually in Bolivia. That's a, a mountain called um, Huayna Potosi that a lot of... Uh, our, our mutual friends have climbed, um, I think it's 5,900, it's just under 6,000 meters. Um, yeah, so I was in, that was uh, after I lived in Ecuador. I, I, have, I still do a lot of work in Latin America, and so I was in Chile teaching uh, in, this, in this workshop, and I had like three days free, and I was like, well, you know, fuck it, I'm going to go up to Bolivia and, and do some climbing. So. Um, I, yeah, I flew from Santiago to La Paz and basically spent the first day just trying to, or the first half day trying to walk around the city to acclimatize as best I could. La Paz is, is at around, I think, 3,200 meters. So it's like, it's quite a shock to the system just going from sea level and getting to the airport. I mean, you, any, anyone, everyone arriving there basically gets altitude symptoms at least, if not altitude sickness. Uh, and then the second day I climbed, um, Oh, it's just a, like a little walk-up mountain that's somewhere in the vicinity of 5,100 meters tall or something like that. And, um, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just this little thing. Well, funnily enough, it used to be the tallest uh, lift-assisted ski resort in the world until the glacier melted and there's not a trace of snow on it, you know, due to ominous changes that are occurring to our planet. And, uh, and so now it's just a bunch of scree that you can walk up. But um, yeah, and I, I did, so I did that, like, I think the first full day I was in Bolivia and then uh, I went immediately to um, to Huayna Potosi. And uh, so this is a mountain that is, it's probably one of the most, most guided, most regularly climbed mountains in South America. It's very accessible to people. Uh, first of all, because it's so close to La Paz. Second of all, because it's basically a walk up uh, on a, like a big snow covered walk up. Although there are a few sections where um, uh, there are crevasse uh, crossings and there are a few sections where if you, if you muck it up, then you'll be in a bad way. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of people at least attempt it. A lot of tourists who have no, you know, climbing mountaineering experience. Um, but certainly not a lot of people, at least I didn't see anyone else there uh, who was unguided. I mean, and certainly no one who soloed it. Um, but I, I went up to the hut and I just hitched a ride with someone and, and got up there and, and went for it. Yeah, I mean, the, the guides were not too happy to see a gringo soloing it and they said some pretty derogatory things to me in Spanish. And then when I replied to them in Spanish, they, uh, sh they shut their mouths, I guess. And then we all kind of celebrated on the summit. Um, you know, it was, it was a nice day out. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was one of the, the wee little walk-ups that I did at one point <laughs> in South America, yeah. You already sound so New Zealand saying we little walk-ups. God, it's going to transform me. <laughs> so uh, you said one of your kind of memorable or, you know, several of your memorable moments climbing in South America, which you did a lot of. Um, and, and like we said before, not always solo. You did a fair few sort of more technical routes um, with climbing partners. But you said a fair few of your kind of more memorable ones were in fact bales where you didn't quite make it to the summit. Um, yes, that's true. Got a couple of those. Yeah, sure. Um, well, so these coincidentally were all with the same climbing partner uh, who is this, he's this American bloke who basically was, he was doing, you know, the, the dirtbag gringo circuit in, in South America. Um, just as you'd expect, like, you know, the alpaca wool poncho and the, um, the charango, like the little Andean stringed instruments that, you know, that all the gringos buy, like, I mean, just, just how you picture him, he's, he's such a nice, he's like one of the nicest people I've ever met, uh, this guy Chris, super gregarious, big bear of a man, um, who lives behind computers for work and is out in the mountains as much as possible when he can. And so he, I think, was taking a year to just um, hitch and ride buses around South America and, and try to climb as much as he could. Uh, and we linked up at one point in Quito and um, it, we just really hit it off because we had very complementary skill sets. Um, Chris was, he was the bloke who could carry the heavy loads. Uh, he's a bigger dude than I am. Uh, he had really good fitness at lower elevations and just race up things when I was huffing and puffing. 
Um, but then when we got a little higher uh, and things got a little more technical, I had some more, I brought a lot more rock climbing um, skills to, to bear on some of our ascents. And so I don't want to give the impression that we, we only bailed together, like we actually climbed quite a number of routes, uh, quite a number of mountains successfully, including uh, the tallest one in, in Ecuador, which is Chimborazo. Um, but yeah, we, we had a few bail experiences. Um, so one was this mountain called Cariwarraso, which I believe, I uh, wrote it down here, I think it's the 10th tallest mountain in Ecuador. Yeah, it's just over 5,000 meters. And uh, this is a mountain that also used to have a ski resort on it that is now like, it still has a glacier, but it is just the most pitiful, sad looking glacier that you can imagine. It's just this little tongue of ice uh, that you can basically walk around if you wanted to. Um, but it doesn't get climbed a lot. It's in, it's in a pretty remote part of the country. Well, it's actually quite close to Chimborazo, which is, like I said, the tallest mountain. But um, this other one, Cariwarraso, because it's, I think, close to Chimborazo, no one it gets overlooked a little bit. And it's a little complex in terms of getting there. Like most of the mountains in Ecuador are, uh, have hut-based climbs because they tend to be quite high altitude and um, conditions can obviously be shit. I mean, it's a bit like here in New Zealand, uh, a lot of there, excuse me, there's a big hut network, but this mountain in particular, Cariwai Raso does not have a hut. So uh, I think, you know, we left Quito one day and rode buses for three or so hours and then took uh, like a, I think uh, just a taxi uh, a colectivo, like this taxi, to the edge of this reserve, and then we hitchhiked into this. There's a, a Vicuña reserve. A Vicuña is like a smaller version of an alpaca. It's a camelid that is native to South America, to the Andes. And um, so we got into this reserve, and then we we just had the you know walk for several hours and across the the Paramo, which is this. Um, special ecosystem at high elevations. It's basically like a um, an ecosystem where it never rains but always mists, and um, it's it's a quite beautiful uh, area with lots of strange plants. Um, and there are no tr there are no tracks or anything. We just kind of had to figure out our way uh, through orientation skills, and um, we we reached camp one night, set up, and the next day went out to summit. Um, and the climb was quite easy, really, until you get to probably around maybe 50 meters or so below the summit. And then there's a chimney that is probably around grade 16 in difficulty, maybe like a 30 meter pitch or something. And um, I mean, we didn't have ropes or anything uh, and it was completely wet. But I, I said, you know, why not? I'll just I'll just go have a. I'll go have a wee look, you know, I'll just go, I'll go check it out, do a little recce and see how we go. Um, and, and I managed to, uh, to solo up to the top and I convinced Chris to come join me. And so at that point we were on this, the summit ridge, but what we realized is that it's not the true summit because uh, if you look across uh, this narrow chasm, uh, this little notch in the ridge, there's actually a tower of utter choss that juts up for maybe 20 or 30 meters or something like that. 
And in order to summit it now, you would have to uh, wrap, you'd have to abseil into that chasm and then climb up this pillar basically that is completely unprotectable. And I mean, there's no, there, there, I'm certain that there are no gear placements in it. And the rock is absolute rubbish, you know, kitty litter type rock. Um, so in the past, the, the glacier, as we later learned, when we were reading about it, when we were there, we were like, why, why the hell did that seem so hard? Like we couldn't get to the proper summit. Um, we couldn't find anything about the, like in all the route descriptions didn't say anything about, you know, wrapping into this notch and having to climb this chossy tower. And as we later learned, it used to be a really straightforward climb to the top because the glacier extended and covered, it filled in that notch. And so people would just cramp on up and stand on top of that little summit block and, and call it a day done and dusted. But uh, as it turns out, it's much harder now. Mm. So um, that was one unfortunate bail. Although, uh, you know, I think we're still pretty happy with that experience. You know, we, we got up basically to the summit ridge and, and it was a pretty good time. Mm. This is what I've learned about alpine climbing as someone who has never done any, is that the clock is ticking on it. You know, okay. if you want to, particularly I feel like in the Andes and, you know, in South America, a lot of places are just, you know, not going to be available to that kind Absolutely. of access anymore <laughs> in the next yeah. year. It's so, it's so true. Uh, so many of the especially in the equatorial Andes. So, you know, when a lot of, I think when a lot of Australians or New Zealanders think of the Andes, they think of Patagonia. Mm. And, um, you know, that's a whole different, just a whole different experience, whole different place for so many reasons. Um, but the equatorial Andes are really getting hammered by climate change. I mean, there's, and it's like, you know, for us as climbers, it's concerning and obvious, but it, if you ask anyone who lives there, and I mean, many people are, are farmers in this part of the world, and they can easily tell you that the seasons are totally different, um, you know, that there's severe drought, that there are all kinds of severe weather patterns that are occurring that never used to, and so, yeah, they're, they're getting hit hard. Yeah, well, I told you about um, the mountain hut we stayed at in the Dolomites, um, where um, Andrew, my partner, had stayed about five years earlier, and then we went back there together, and he was like, oh, there's this beautiful glacial lake right outside the mountain hut. Um, and when we got up there, it was gone in, wow. in five years, completely gone. It's in the guidebook, but you can't actually see it when you go up there anymore. Yeah, you know, speaking of, like we talked at the beginning about this, this bouldering guidebook, I, I certainly don't envy guidebook authors for alpine climbs. Uh, there was a, there's a, a recent, uh, you know, the NZAC, the Alpine Club here puts out a lot of guidebooks and they had one published um, just a few months ago about another part of the Southern Alps. And I, I certainly don't envy those authors because uh, I'm sure a lot of the root descriptions will be completely erroneous in a few years' time. I mean, things are just changing, yeah. Yeah. Um, that got pretty dark. Let's talk about yeah. your other bales. <laughs> well, yeah, so, um, I mean, the, yeah, the other ones are, there's, there's another one that Chris and I climbed together uh, in Ecuador called Cotacachi, which is the, what, the 11th tallest, I believe. Um, in, in Ecuador, it's, uh, Cotacachi is a place where 
I highly recommend anyone who goes to Ecuador for any reason to visit. Um, it's in the northern part of the country and it's just incredibly beautiful. I used to spend a lot of time there because there's a, a university I was doing work with uh, that's not far from there. But this is a place where you have everything from uh, like amazing local coffee that's grown in uh, on a little bit further down in the coastal cloud forest uh, to snow-capped mountains uh, and everything like pastoral and bucolic in between. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And so uh, I rode my motorbike out there from, from Quito and met Chris and we stayed on, we stayed at this little place on um, the Laguna de Quicocha, which is this incredible alpine lake. And it's called Quicocha because there's, um, there are these islands in the middle of the lake that look, that are meant to look like guinea pigs, or at least, you know, according to local lore. And a guinea pig in, in, uh, in, in Quechua language is called a qui. Uh, which is a very common food also in Ecuador. So uh, if I, I am, I'm not a meat eater, but I, I'm, yeah, I'm vegetarian, but I, uh, I have eaten kui and it's definitely an experience unto itself. So yeah, I just remember the night before doing this climb, sitting lakeside, drinking a beer, and we were looking up at the mountain and looking out of the lake and just thinking how incredible it is uh, to be there. And um, the next day we, we got up to uh, the start of where, where the route would start, but we had to first pass through some logistics because uh, this peak is not meant to be climbed uh, unguided. And this is actually the case for a lot of mountains in Ecuador. Uh, almost every mountain, I think all of the glaciated ones, and Cotacachi yet again is one that used to have a glacier uh, and no longer does. Uh, and so for some reason, maybe just because of that or because it was grandfathered in or because uh, it does have a technical bit of rock climbing at the end, uh, you were meant to have a guide to climb it. But uh, I don't know, I, I just, I was able to talk our way through uh, the, at the guard shack and we started walking up. Um, again, you know, this is a situation where route finding was really hard because the landscape had changed a lot. Uh, it also, there was also a fresh snowfall, you know, maybe like 20, 30 centimeters of snow on the ground. And so it was, it was really hard to, to pick out certain landmarks and things. Um, and we got turned around a fair bit, but eventually we got up to, again, right about 50 meters or so from the summit uh, when we reached uh, another one of these grade 16 chimneys which is just like they're they definitely occur on several of the mountains and uh that i've climbed on in the andes where like you know if it were sitting on the ground and frog you'd be like this is a piece of piss like it's you know it's like climbing shit heap or frog basically yeah. um, maybe a little harder but it's you know it's not it's not a hard route but when you go up there and you don't have a gear and uh it's totally wet and conditions are worsening you know fog is rolling in visibility is nil uh, they start sounding a little more daunting. Uh, so for this route, I, I knew I talked to local friends, like Ecuadorian climbers that I was friends with about the the end bit. And and they're like, you're probably okay to solo, but like, how's your mate with soloing, you know, rock stuff? 
I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. We've done like a fair bit. Of, we've done this and that together. Like I've seen him scramble a lot of stuff, but you know, he's okay. And they're like, oh, if I were you, I'd definitely take a rope up. So uh, I brought a, a, just a short, probably 30 meter coil of rope up, um, but I didn't have any gear. Uh, so when I moved to Ecuador, I didn't bring a trad rack. I was going there temporarily and, you know, there's only so much you can bring. And uh, since I was also going to work, going there for work, and I had to bring all this other stuff, the trad rack got left behind. Also, there's not a lot of great trad climbing in Ecuador. Uh, what there is of rock climbing tends to be sport. So uh, I didn't have a rack in Kristen either. And um, so what we decided to do was that I would just rope up and try to solo up this thing and if I could get to the top and maybe build an anchor off of a, a boulder or something, then I'd, I'd belay Chris up. So uh, I started up a couple times, false started, and I mean, this, this chimney was totally wet and uh, the conditions were just getting worse and worse and started snowing again. Uh, so at that point, we just decided, you know, it's not worth it, we'll just bail. And um, yeah, I mean, once again, it's one of these decisions where you think it's it's pretty ridiculous. Like it it really is not a hard technical challenge, and the conditions. The thing about climbing, often in Ecuador, anyway, is uh, some experiences I've had. Like I've also I've bowed on other mountains. Like I, I bowed on um, on Cayambe, uh, which is the third tallest mountain in Ecuador. I bowed once. Uh, due to blizzard conditions, and then I, I summited the second time. But you know, sometimes you go up and and it just it's the the weather is just unbelievably bad. <laughs> I mean, like the the there's no visibility, uh, and it's so it's so wet or snowy or so windy. Um, and I think you know you ha at a certain stage you just have to cut your losses. Mm. I mean, I imagine being that close to the summit, it must be agonizing to turn around. But then at the same time, like, you know, you're saying, yeah, it's a grade 16 chimney that you're soloring, which for you is, is a piece of piss ordinarily. But then when you factor altitude into that equation as well as bad weather and, you know, wet conditions, um, yeah, I, I would assume that makes the decision easier, despite the fact that it must be so tempting to just kind of push for the summit. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think another aspect of this is um, there's always the question of time. And so my throughout my climbing career, I've always, I guess like how I tend to live life in general, it's just like a little bit fast and furious. So uh, usually like when I get out to do these climbs, I would have a window of a few days, like maybe, you know, three days max, but that includes all the time that it takes to get to the place and do the approach, do the climb, descend, and get back home before I would have some other work or professional obligation. So the, you know, the clock is ticking, and uh, if we had had another day and we could wait for bluebird skies, then we probably could have gotten up it without too much of an issue. But yeah, I mean, we, we just saw it as um, we were getting out there, we were doing what we were enjoying, uh, and and we, we really, I, I mean, between Chris and I, and he went on to do heaps of climbing in, in Peru and Bolivia as well. Uh, and I've done a fair bit of climbing in, in other parts of South America too. We, I mean, we just got around a lot. You know, we, we ended up getting onto a lot of mountains. And even though we didn't necessarily summit everything, we've, we've 
stepped onto and you know put tracks into so many of the the mountains and significant formations there and so a lot of it was just about getting to know the place and, and getting to know the people do you think that's kind of the better mindset to have when you're climbing sort of big mountain objectives rather than I mean, I think, you know, in Southeast Queensland, where we're all kind of fair weather rock climbers, um, you know, the goal is always to summit and, you know, or to get to the top of, of a route. Um, whereas, yeah, with big mountain objectives, I, I guess there's so many more things that are out of your control, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I think you could even relate it to what I, when I mentioned earlier, when I told the story about climbing the Schnard Herbert, that uh, grade 23 route on the Sentinel in Yosemite, um, you know, that, if, if you were a real purist, that would not be a successful free ascent. Um, and certainly, like, I wouldn't log it on my Crag profile page as such. I would. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, but like, it's, because you, um, yeah, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. Like when it comes to sport climbing or bouldering, I'm much more exacting with myself in terms of trying to set goals and meet them. And, you know, if I, if I fall on something, I'll come back and I'll try it again. But if you're doing a big mountain objective, then, then yeah, I, I definitely think that you, it's much better to have the mentality of you're going out for an experience and your, your objective is to arrive home safely and whatever happens along the way as long as you know no one gets hurt and, and nothing atrocious happens then it's a good experience and you may not have you know done everything clean or, or, or stood on the very tip top of everything but uh at the end of the day you're really not going to at least most people are probably not going to care about that i at least i don't care about it because I have these, these memories of these incredible experiences and it, it really does not matter a whole lot if I stood at the very top or if I just have the holistic memory of what actually occurred and the conversations and the, you know, the laughter and um, the different, different views and the, just the feeling of being up there in these special environments. I mean, I think that's what I really take away from it. Yeah, that's very wise, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Soon to be best-selling author of uh, Queensland Bouldering. Cold <laughs> author, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so Dave, just tell us once again um, where people can buy that guidebook. Sure. Um, well, they can pick it up at a lot of the local gear shops around the Brisbane uh, slash sunny coast, Gold Coast areas. So that includes Pinnacle Sports, K2, uh, they can also get it through Wild Earth or Climbing Anchors. They can get it at Urban Climb, Alpine Flow, Crank, Core, Rocket. Um, well, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting anyone. Basically, all the, all the local gyms uh, almost around uh, Southeast Queensland are stocking this book at this stage. Uh, so, yeah, you can find it in a lot of spots. Uh, start checking off these uh, bouldering objectives and maybe one day you too could be climbing big mountains in South America like Yosemite Dave. That's right. <laughs> yeah, every, every little meter counts. <laughs> Did, uh, do you have any advice for people who do want to get started on, on those mountain objectives? I mean, it kind of just seems like a, a, a world away from being in Australia. Yeah, well, you know... Um, 
That's true in some ways, but in other ways it's not. I'd say there, there are two ways you could train uh, for those mountain objectives in Southeast Queensland. And one way is to, to explore the mountain ranges that are local in the area. I mean, I've, in addition to all the stuff that I've talked about, uh, I have done heaps of climbing, multi-pitch, you know, adventure climbing, adventure and otherwise climbing in Southeast Queensland in the Glasshouse Mountains, uh, Mount Maroon, Mount Barney, uh, I mean, our mutual friend, uh, the venerable Shavi Ryan Siachi and I climbed the governor together last year. Um, and, you know, in addition to many other things. And there's heaps of good adventures to be had in Southeast Queensland. It just might be that you are, you're bush bashing uh, and, and, you know, sh trying to shelter yourself from the sun and, uh, and dealing with spoogy, hot and spoogy conditions rather than cold and icy ones and, and glaciers and everything. But uh, you can get out and have a lot of adventure and uh, learn a lot of the skills that you need uh, with regards to, well, certainly if you want to do anything that's technical, that involves technical rock climbing, I mean, frog buttress is an incredible proving ground uh, and just destination really for, for chucking cams and, and wires in the cracks. And, um, a lot of the, the orienteering skills can be practiced and learned in Southeast Queensland, self-rescue. I mean, even at KP, you can go and, and learn to self-rescue or abseil. And, and you know, you can learn to you can learn to lead solo or rope solo. Uh, there are a lot of different skills that can be learned in the area. I think what Queensland climbers probably would benefit most from beyond all that though, is just to go to a place where it's cold and, and understand what it's like under, under shit conditions. Like, I don't know, go to Tassie or come over here to New Zealand in winter and just go out and suffer a little bit. Like get used to camping in really terrible weather and high winds and bitter cold. Uh, get your gear sorted and your system sorted for that. Because I can tell you even like, I, when I moved over here recently in, in the heart of winter, I, would, I didn't even know what to do to go sport climbing. I was like, oh, I have to wear like sleeves and I have to wear pants and not just thongs everywhere. I need more than one layer. Like what the hell is that? You know, so uh, it definitely, it's beneficial to get some exposure to those things. Can I tell you an embarrassing story that I probably shouldn't be sharing publicly? When we um, went to the Dolomites in summer, European summer, um, I think the first day um, we got up to uh, climb at a place called Falzarego Pass, um, we walked out of the place, the accommodation where we'd been staying and it had snowed overnight. And I was like to Andrew, can we just go back inside and like wait a little bit longer for it to warm up? In summer that happened. So I would definitely recommend uh, getting used to climbing in uh, non-tropical conditions. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. <shot. laughs> yeah, yeah, it helps. I think if you want to do tropical big walls in Mozambique or Brazil, Southeast Queensland will prepare you well for the conditions. But um, beyond that, good luck. <laughs> Thanks, Dave, for sharing your many, many very wise and exciting stories. You're welcome. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, it's always great to revel in your past triumphs and failures. 
Thanks for listening to The Bail List. As always, just so happy to have you here. If you'd like to reach out and say hello or share a fail, bail or epic, please get in touch. Find us at The Bail List on Facebook and Instagram. Tell your friends about The Bail List. Next month is our one-year anniversary. I'm not quite sure how we're going to celebrate that, but I'll think up something fun, so stay tuned. Thanks, as always, to the legends at Wild Earth and Awesome Woodies for supporting the podcast. And go pick up the new Queensland Boulder and Guidebook and get psyched. See you next time.